Welcome to SLU Law Summations, presenting brief looks at legal matters that matter to you by St. Louis University School of Law, located in the heart of downtown St. Louis. According to President Biden, the COVID-19 pandemic is over. However, there are still millions of Americans that are feeling the lasting effects of their own battle with the virus. As the medical and legal field struggle to catch up with this ongoing issue, there are concerns that what is known as long COVID will result in additional racial health disparities on top of those that occurred during the pandemic. In this episode, we are joined by visiting Professor Mary Crossley. Professor Crossley is visiting from Pitt Law, where she is a John E. Murray faculty scholar and director of the Health Law Program. I'm Jessica Sacconi, Director of Communications for SLU Law, and this is a special live recording of SLU Law Summations for the second episode of this year's Health Law Live series. Thank you for joining us today. Oh, I'm so happy to be with you, Jessica. Thank you. So first, we know the pandemic brought to... Yes. I say we know, but um, brought to light the racial inequities in our healthcare system. Can you talk about what some of those biggest issues are or were? Yeah, yeah, and and I think it's both were and are. Mm-hmm. Um, so so when we look at data regarding the number of um, or the rates of infections and deaths from COVID nineteen, the data show that people of color have experienced higher rates of both COVID-19 infections and deaths as compared to white people in the United States. And so that requires a little bit of unpacking, right? So the higher rates of infection um, are, are commonly attributed to the fact that people of color were had an increased exposure to infection, right? And that's largely because of um, working arrangements, transportation, um, living arrangements, everything from the fact that people of color are more likely to be employed in jobs where um, they were so-called frontline workers, essential workers. They did jobs that were public-facing and they couldn't be done remotely. Um, They were more likely to rely on public transportation. They were more likely to live in in, um, housing settings that were more crowded. Um, making it more difficult to to distance safely at home. Um, so so that's you know part of the explanation for higher rates of infection. Mm-hmm. And then once we look at uh, people were already infected, then part of the problem with respect to um, higher rates of hospitalization and deaths, uh, it has to do with barriers to receiving care, mm-hmm. right? And and those barriers included everything from Um, lower rates of being covered by health insurance, particularly in states that have not uh, expanded their Medicaid program, Um, being employed in settings where there's no paid sick leave so that if if, um, someone started feeling sick, they they didn't take time off, um, weren't able to to get tested. Um, Certainly, there were geographic disparities in terms of where resources were allocated. So some geographic areas, some healthcare facilities were under-resourced, which made having access to testing or high-quality treatment um, more of a challenge for some demographic groups. And then there were just concerns about, um, you know, when patients would decide whether to seek testing or care, um, the the endemic distrust of the healthcare system among many communities of color, as well as, you know, the fact that um, 
people of color are often more likely to be dismissed by healthcare professionals when they do seek care. So, so kind of a whole combination of, right, of right. factors that contributed to higher rates of infection and then greater challenges in a, receiving effective um, treatment, testing, and then treatment um, once infection occurred. Um, do you think this is, I don't mean to come out with a question that's not prepared already, but do you think that there's ever been, I don't know, an ish, a virus or any time in our like recent history where this has been like so exposed, these inequities? I, I think that it, um, I won't say it's the first time that the inequities mm-hmm. have incur- occurred. Right, um, right. No. You know, certainly with the history of HIV AIDS, with tuberculosis, we, with hepatitis, we see similar disparities, but, but I think your point about it being, um, so exposed and, mm-hmm. and there being as much attention to it, um, paid to it. I think you're right. I think that, you know, there have been a lot of people who've talked about how, you know, the, the pandemic laid bare health. I mean, I think I've written about that laid bare health disparities that have been there for a long right. time. Right. I think partly it's because it was such a, you know, a, a huge thing for, for the whole world. Mm-hmm. There was a lot of reporting on it. Um, mm-hmm. as, as numbers started coming in, it was impo- you know, almost impossible not to acknowledge the kind right. of disparities, um, that existed. Yeah. Absolutely. Um, so long COVID um, has been an issue since the beginning of the pandemic and remains one today. In fact, as we discussed earlier, a study run out of the University of Glasgow, Glasgow, yeah, found that one in 20 people suffer from long-term effects after COVID. Can you tell us what that looks like for most people dealing with the problem? Yeah. So, so one of the challenges with long COVID and, and this is something I'm just, you know, I think we're all just learning about is that there is such a vast array of different symptoms, right? It's very complex condition. So there, there are tons of different things that could be going on. Probably, um, from what I've read, fatigue is the most frequently expressed symptom. Hmm. Um, Many people with long COVID also um, struggle with brain fog. This is this, this situation where you have problems with focus and memory and recalling words, um, as well as, and I'm just going to read the list that I wrote down okay. from, from, from the federal governments. Mm-hmm. The, the main symptoms are sleep disturbances, mood changes, headaches, loss of taste and smell, heart palpitations, dizziness, shortness of breath, cough, chest pain, diarrhea, stomach pain, joint or muscle pain, rashes, and pins and needles feelings, right? And that's just a partial list. So, so there are a whole, there's a whole range of symptoms, but, but again, the kind of, I think the ones you hear most often have to do with fatigue, um, brain fog, and then um, also um, shortness of breath. Mm-hmm. Okay. I have another question. That's not on the list. <laughs> I said I wasn't going to do this very much, but how do you, (laughs) (laughs) how do you even determine that that is the, that COVID is the cause of those kinds of issues? Because a lot of them sound like fairly common, right? Not fairly common, obviously brain fog isn't, but I mean, uh, how, how do they, is there a way that you, that the medical field has gone about determining that? Well, that's one of the things they're really working on now. And that's one of the real challenges is that, you know, being able to, come up with a set of diagnostic criteria for saying, you know, this person 
who had COVID is now demonstrating these symptoms and right. we are going to put the long COVID label on mm-hmm. it. Right. Mm-hmm. And, and so, you know, the first step, and this isn't always so clear cut, and this kind of gets back to some of the, the health disparities, because the first thing is to say, yes, this is a person who had COVID. Right. Right. And because of some of the disparities in the healthcare or the inequities in the healthcare system, um, people of color may have been less likely to actually receive a COVID diagnosis in their medical mm-hmm. record. Doesn't mean they didn't have it. Right. Right. But, but they may not have the diagnosis. So the COVID diagnosis is the first thing. And then coming up with the set of kind of clinical diagnostic criteria that, right. that doctors can use to say, yes, you are a person who based on your previous COVID diagnosis, plus the symptoms that you're um, experiencing now, mm-hmm. I'm going to label you w- with having long COVID. And, and for a lot of the, um, you know, not, not only are these symptoms that might occur independently of long COVID, they also are symptoms that are um, by necessity uh, really self-reported. Right. right. There's 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 not a kind of objective um, clinical test necessarily that would show mm-hmm. um, brain fog or right, right. confusion um, or fatigue. So so diagnosing long COVID is is really complex. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's one of the first things that that the medical field and the scientific community um, kind of has to figure out. Yeah. I mean, I'm sitting here thinking like do I have long COVID or I just have two children that are under (laughs) very small? I'm not sure. Um, Starting to rethink my own diagnosis. Okay. Anyway. um, So as we look kind of transition to like what, how long COVID is being dealt with on a professional basis, right? So what kind of impact do you think long COVID will have on the amount of people seeking accommodations? Um, under the ADA? And how do you think businesses will respond to that kind of, to these kind of things? Yeah, that that's presented? a, I mean, that's, that's a huge question. Um, mm-hmm. So, so studies do suggest that long COVID can often be um, debilitating and can mm-hmm. affect people's ability to work. I think once, one study I read estimated that more than half of working age adults with long COVID who had worked Prior to having COVID, um, less than half of them were working full time, right? Once they had had COVID, now have long COVID, um, they're not able to work full time anymore. And so that does, you know, indicate that a a really large number of people um, are probably going to need some kind of accommodation Mm -hmm. in order to maintain their employment. And there are reports that employers are, are seeing um, increased requests for accommodations, mm-hmm. but there are also reports um, that that a lot of those requests are being denied. And so, you know, the challenge is to really identify what kinds of accommodations would enable people with long COVID to continue to perform the essential functions of their job um, mm-hmm. and to get employers to um, to grant those accommodations. And and some of it, I mean, it. it you know, there there is history of of recognizing reduced work hours and flexible schedules mm-hmm. as as a workplace accommodation for people with disabilities, mm-hmm. and um, that you know might seem like well that could be a good accommodation, and maybe in some cases it it could, um, 
But one of the challenges of, of long COVID as well is that at least for many people who experience it, it can be, their experience of it can be quite variable. Right. In other words, it may, um, you know, affect them some days and not others. And you can't predict what days those will be. And, mm-hmm. and some days the effect may be very mild and other weeks it may be quite debilitating. So it's not like, you know, some some people with disabilities, they may be able to say, I know because of my disability that I have a really hard time working in the mornings. And so, mm-hmm. you know, I need a, a flexible schedule so that I can have later working hours. Mm-hmm. Um, there's not that kind of predictability in many cases. Mm-hmm. The other type of accommodation that that could probably be helpful for um, some people with long COVID would be an accommodation of being able to work from home. Mm-hmm. And, and it's really interesting because prior to COVID, um, employers had really rejected um, by and large the idea of remote work being a mm-hmm. reasonable accommodation. Mm-hmm. Uh, and courts had pretty much backed them up. But after our national experience with COVID where so many people were working from home, it's very hard for, it becomes much harder for employers to say that, that that's not a reasonable accommodation right. or that it somehow imposes an undue burden. So it's going to be interesting to see how mm-hmm. um, employers respond to requests for work from home accommodations and to the extent that they reject them and that it um, produces a lot of additional ADA um, accommodation litigation, it'll be interesting to see how courts respond, um, having having witnessed what we've gone through with with national work from home experiments. Right. Experiments. I like I like the use of that word. Um, Is there any way is it the litigation that would help kind of solidify long COVID it, like as a something that needs to be addressed by the ADA? Is that how that would kind of happen? Well, the, th- the thing is that um, the, the Biden administration has already put out guidance indicating that long COVID can qualify as okay. a disability under the ADA. Mm-hmm. The thing with the ADA is that um, with very few exceptions, all determinations of disability have to be made on a case-by-case basis. Mm, So it's not simply that you can even, even if you're able to get a diagnosis of long COVID from a doctor, that alone doesn't give you any kind of right to protection under the ADA, Mm -hmm. right? You have to meet the definition of an individual with a disability based on your particular circumstances, right? right? The the impairments that you face and how they limit your major life activities. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think I think probably the things that will help kind of solidify what people have rights to is, you know, one thing that would be helpful would be further guidance from um, the EEOC, mm-hmm. right? Um, about, for example, what are appropriate accommodations for um, people with long COVID that it, at least in many cases could be reasonable um, and not impose an undue burden on employers. And then I think you're right that that as these cases kind of make their way through the judicial system, mm-hmm. then court decisions will will um, provide further guidance for mm-hmm. employers. Mm-hmm. It's interesting, though. You know, I really um, you know I, I've I've heard the reports that there are a lot of um, requests for accommodations, a lot of re- denials by employers. Uh, 
I also wonder to what extent the fact that we are in a very tight labor market, yeah. um, you know, I would think that at least in some instances, uh, employers would be motivated to um, consider accommodations um, mm-hmm. in order to retain employees who are, who are um, good. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you would hope. You would yeah. hope. Um, so outside of, um, the measures that Biden took that you mentioned, what other things can the government take or do to address the needs of those with long COVID? How long do we have? Um, (laughs) yeah, so I, I, I think, you know, when you say the needs of people with long COVID, I think there are uh, like a kind of a list of needs to think about. So, so one need is just the need to have um, better medical and scientific understanding, mm-hmm. right? To, to actually be able to figure out how most effectively to diagnose and treat long COVID. So, you know, there's the whole kind of research piece of it. And, mm-hmm. and in fact, that may be where the government, at least in terms of allocating funding, has, has done the most, right? So there's mm-hmm. You know, the NIH has has given um, more than a um, billion dollars to support research into long COVID. Mm-hmm. Um, there is also a national research action plan on long COVID that was announced um, back in August, and they've created a, a new office within the Department of Health and Human Services that focuses on long COVID. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, so that really is all, or at least partly is focused on the idea that we really need to understand what's going on, right? Mm-hmm. To, to be able to figure out how to diagnose it and what are the most effective kind of therapeutic interventions. But then even once you have that, then you have to have to address the needs, um, of people with long COVID to be able to access healthcare so that they can get diagnosed and receive some treatment. Um, And I think that there we look at a lot of the similar barriers um, to effective access to treatment that we saw initially in the pandemic, right? I mean, You've got to have a way to pay for health care, which means you need to have health insurance. But keep in mind that if you lose your job because you have long COVID, you may also lose your health insurance. Right. Right. And then there are also other um, non-financial barriers to being able to access care. If you don't have paid sick leave, if you don't um, have transportation, if the care is being provided um, in mostly in academic medical centers, um, but you usually access care at a community health center. Mm-hmm. Right? There's a real need to make sure that that as knowledge is acquired and the ability to treat long COVID is developed, that that really permeates down to the primary care level, right? Mm-hmm. And particularly primary care settings that um, people of color and and other people who um, are have been more marginalized are able to access. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I would just um, mention that access to healthcare is also really important because it is how you get a diagnosis. Right. And you have to have the diagnosis from a doctor of long COVID to then be able to take advantage of any kind of disability protections like mm-hmm. the ADA or disability benefits like um, government disability um, financial supports, mm-hmm. right? And that's that's the other area of need that people mm-hmm. with long COVID have is they need to have, um, if their ability to work is affected, 
by their long COVID, they really need to, to have some means of financial support. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and right now, the existing public programs, the um, Social Security Disability Insurance Program and Supplemental Security um, Income Program are really quite difficult to access um, and have very stringent criteria. And they're really, they're quite focused on long-term disability. Mm-hmm. And, and some, of the, some of the more recent research coming out is at least kind of encouraging in the sense that it suggests that for people who end up experience long COVID, not, it's only a small percentage of them for whom it is a long-term proposition, right? That it, where it lasts longer than a year. Okay. And actually one of the question. criteria for getting government social, um, government disability benefits mm-hmm. is that you have a condition that either will last longer than a year or is expected to result in death, right? So there yeah. needs to be some kind of yeah. short-term disability um, kind of support right. for people with long COVID who are unable to work. I mean, there are short-term disability like insurance, but that's obviously not provided by the government. Right, right. And a lot of people don't have it. And particularly no. people who work in sectors that don't provide yes. generous benefits yeah. are not likely to have it. And right? here so we that's, are. That's great for people who have it. And, and mm-hmm. that's, you know, that's appropriate if, if mm-hmm. in fact, those insurers recognize long COVID as a disability. The, the other thing, though, and then I'll stop, um, <laughs> is the last need I would really kind of highlight for people with long COVID is just kind of a human need to be believed, mm-hmm. right? To be taken seriously, to have what you're going through validated. And there are, you know, there are a lot of, if you just kind of like get on social media or read the news, there's a lot of people um, expressing how they are suffering and when they yeah. go to the doctor or they, you know, talk to their employer, they're just not believed, mm-hmm. right? And that's very um, demoralizing right. and, and um, makes it much harder for those folks to actually be able to improve, I think, if, if they're not taking it seriously. Mm-hmm. And I'll just, you know, add the footnote there that um, it's disproportionately people of color and women who have that experience mm-hmm. of, of having their complaints dismissed or not taken seriously. And then we're, and that probably just dovetails into some mental health issues. And then we're on this vicious cycle of, yeah, Yeah, sadly. Yeah. Yeah. So we kind of, you kind of touched on this a little bit um, here at the end, but how um, have racial disparities affected the response to long COVID um, and what impact do you believe such disparities will have in the future? I think you talked about a little bit about the um, access to healthcare um, and the diagnosis as a problem. Um, yeah, yeah. So, so they're they're kind of um, I think two dimensions worth keeping in mind. Mm-hmm. Um, and the one that got me started thinking about long COVID to begin with and and health equity is just the fact that that people of color were infected with COVID at higher rates right. as compared to white people. And so, you know, my thought was, well, you know, therefore we are likely to see an overrepresentation of people of color among people who have long COVID. Mm-hmm. Um, there's, there's not a whole lot of data regarding prevalence out yet. There, there is one um, study that is, um, came from the, the CDC um, that does suggest that, that particularly um, Latinx populations 
who have had COVID are more likely um, to experience long COVID than Hmm. than other racial or ethnic groups. Um, In addition, women are more likely to experience long COVID than are men who have had Hmm. COVID. Um, So there there is some overrepresentation, but even, which is one concern about disparities, right? Even putting that aside, though, even if we had kind of like proportional representation of, of different racial and ethnic groups among people with long COVID, then there's still the concern about, so who's getting the short end of the stick in mm-hmm. terms of access to care for long COVID, um, in terms of being taken seriously when they um, go to the doctor, in terms of of having their financial needs met. And, and as you suggest, we see a lot of the, the same kinds of concerns um, that arose in the acute COVID right. um, stage of the pandemic. Mm-hmm. I... Oh boy. Um, so how is the vulnerability of those with pre-existing conditions complicating the diagnosis with health, with long COVID? Yeah. And this, this kind of goes back, I, I think to, to what we were talking about earlier in terms mm-hmm. of how difficult it is to, diagnose long COVID, to be able to tease out what's long COVID and what is is different. So it's really hard, I think, to to disentangle what's caused by long COVID and what symptoms um, might have occurred anyway when you have somebody who has a pre-existing condition, whether it's a a heart condition or diabetes or, um, you know, COPD. It's it's and, and also there is in in some of the um, studies so far there is evidence that uh, suggesting that people who had pre-existing conditions, some kind of chronic illness mm-hmm. prior to contracting COVID, may be more likely to develop long COVID. And I think that you know I think this difficulty of, of disentangling what's caused by long COVID and and what might have occurred even mm-hmm. in the absence of having gotten COVID, it becomes important in two circumstances that I can think of in particular. One, if it turns out that the treatment for the symptom is different, you know, the recommended treatment is different Mm -hmm. depending on whether it's the result of long COVID or um, the underlying condition, right? So if you have COPD and long COVID and you experience breathing problems, is the treatment different depending on right. whether it's long COVID breathing problems or COPD treatment mm-hmm. problems? Mm-hmm. I, I, you know, I don't know the answer yeah. to whether that's likely to be an issue or not. But the other time it can really be um, potentially a problem is if, as in terms of policy responses, mm-hmm. um, if there were, um, if long co- being diagnosed with long COVID were associated with some kind of special benefits or preferential treatment, then it would also make a difference Mm -hmm. to be able to say, um, this is long COVID versus no, this is the effects of your, your preexisting condition. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, Do you think, you know, we mentioned earlier that one in 20 folks that suffer from these long-term effects. And, and, and that's, you know, that's one study there. Right. There's a real range of, of how likely it is um, I mean, to, to experience long COVID if you've had COVID. Yeah. Cause I'm, I'm wondering, like, we're talking a lot about how difficult it is to diagnose. Right. And I wonder how many people, how under that number is probably lower 
than what it actually is because there's probably quite a few people that are suffering with long-term long COVID and don't even have never had it diagnosed, right? So it's probably an underreported number. No? Yes, and and a lot of the um, you know a lot of the research, a lot of the surveys, um, I mm-hmm. think will not say have you been diagnosed with long COVID, okay. but have you experienced Got you it. know one of this set of symptoms okay. you know, three or months after having been diagnosed with with COVID. Um, so that's the way they kind of try to get at it, but, mm, but still the, the ranges, I mean, I've seen ranges from 5% to 30% of mm. people who have COVID may experience long COVID wow. to one degree or another. So, yeah. you know, this is, this is a, an area where the, the knowledge is evolving fairly rapidly, but mm-hmm. it still is quite incomplete. Right. Right. Um, all right. And I guess my final question as are people um, are people encouraged to receive boosters for COVID amid continuing vaccine hesitancy and resistance? What do you see as a, uh, okay, now I'm rereading this question. I'm like, now I get it. As people are encouraged to receive boosters for COVID amid continuing vaccine hesitancy and resistance, what do you see as the future of long COVID? and the risk of related disabilities in the United States. Yeah, so um, so this idea of kind of looking forward, I think that, mm-hmm. you know, it raises the question of, did we actually learn anything? Right. You know, we talked at the beginning about how, you know, COVID was when, for many people, for the first time, they actually was like, wow, look at these health disparities. Yeah. Um, and, and we have some understanding why they're occurring. Well, so are we going to do anything differently now, right? We, we know what the problems were, yeah. and we know that they may reoccur with respect in slightly different versions, but, but basically the same kind of problems with respect to long COVID. Mm-hmm. And so are we going to do anything differently? So I think that policymakers, um, along with healthcare leaders and providers, really should be considering the key question of, of what, what does a health equity-informed approach to long COVID um, disability policy and practice look like, mm-hmm. right? So if, if we try to really put health equity at the beginning of the right. sentence of, of saying, what should our policy and practice be? I think that's important. And, and to my mind, that really should include recognizing and accounting for the reality that the higher infection rates that people of color experienced were attributable to less favorable employment and housing and um, transportation arrangements that were themselves attributable to histories and current day manifestations of systemic racism, mm-hmm. right? So I, I think we, we really need to be very clear eyed about the fact that, you know, the higher rates of infection didn't just happen. Right. Right. They were the result of, of inequitable social circumstances. Mm-hmm. And so when we think about making sure that we try to do the right thing, do the equitable thing in responding to, to long COVID, I think we need to keep that in mind. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, you have certainly given us a lot to grapple with. Um, and <laughs> So I really appreciate you taking the time to talk with us today for this um, for this episode. And I will let Amy um, come back and do a little summary. 
Well, thank you, Jessica. On behalf of the Center for Health Law Studies, I want to thank you for attending today's Health Law Live podcast. You can find this interview and previous Health Law Live recordings wherever you find your podcasts. I love that we get to say that. (laughs) Uh, We look forward to seeing you for our next podcast uh, next week on Thursday, October 20th at 10.30 a.m. with Professor Rob Gatter. Mm -hmm. And if you enjoyed hearing from Professor Crosley today, please also feel free to join us Monday for... Health Law, a Health Law Distinguished Speaker Series with Professor Crosley. Uh, she'll give a talk on her new book, Embodied Injustice, Race, Disability, and Health. Upcoming events are listed in the chat, and be sure to check your email or our Twitter page for information on other upcoming Center for Health Law Studies events. Thank you to SLU Law Summation's host, Jessica Sacconi, and to our guest, Professor Mary, Mary Crosley, for today's podcast. We will see you next time. Thank you. Thanks. Bye. Thank you for joining us for SLU Law Summations, produced by St. Louis University School of Law.